been through the ups and the downs of the sort of semi-bohemian life for about 25 years now. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. In today's episode, we talk to bohemian businessman Tom Hodgkinson. In 2002, Tom quit the commercial world and retired to a farmhouse on the coast of North Devon to write books. His first book, How to Be Idle, was a global bestseller and is one of our favorites. That success was followed by several other books, including another of our favorites, Business for Bohemians. In 2014, Tom returned to London to launch and develop the Idler Academy, both in the real world and online. In 2016, he and the Idler team relaunched the Idler as a magazine, raising £150,000 from 146 investors on Crowdcube. We really enjoyed having this delightful conversation with Tom about his philosophy for life and work. In it, he shares practical tips for how we can all live as bohemians, even if we have a day job. Thank you very much, Tom, for joining our podcast. And we, as we were chatting right before we started recording, uh, we are doing this season very much about, you know, writers with day jobs and how do you decide whether you want to make the, the jump uh, to change your lifestyle and everything about that. Um, and so your whole process with and your project with Idler and everything that's come on after that is very interesting and exciting and your philosophy is very exciting for us. If you could maybe just talk us through how you decided to start it and how you think of this whole uh, day job and creativity situation. Yeah, sure. Well, I had the idea many, many years ago when I had a day job and I was working at a place called the Sunday Mirror magazine, uh, which was a tabloid, very successful then anyway, in the 90s uh, magazine. You know, I, I had aspirations to be to do something a little bit more kind of intellectual. Um, and I really didn't enjoy this job at all. And I hated being trapped. I didn't like the kind of regular hours and so on. Um, and I read a series of essays by Dr. Johnson, who was hugely well known in the 18th century. And he was one of the first sort of, I suppose, columnists or Fleet Street hacks, if you like. And uh, he was very well liked and well known. He never really made much money, but he was, you know, he wrote, he wrote, wrote a dictionary. So he was, you could hardly call, accuse him of being slack. Um, but he... Uh, he had this natural laziness about him and he found it hard to get out of bed. Uh, and he wrote essays about this and he wrote a series of essays called the idler and they were published as a column, you know, in a, in a, in an 18th century weekly magazine. And I just thought that was such a lovely title for an essay or a series of essays or a book or a magazine or something, because the idler is someone, it's something more positive than lazy. It's, uh, it brings to mind ideas of you know all all the good good sides of doing nothing contemplation reflection going for a walk thinking um the time that you actually need to be creative to come up with creative ideas and most jobs most work most workplaces are very sort of anti creative and um uh not only do you feel like a kind of a, a a slave to somebody else's idea but uh you don't really have any sort of time to think uh, and then you, you go home and 
watch television and drink too much booze and you know it's all kind of gets rather depressing um <laughs> but there's another way of looking at life which is i suppose you would call it bohemian or idlerish you know the people who who work to live so the people who really want to get something out of life and i tried to pursue this idea that is it possible you know um to make something to, to make a living out of the thing that you would kind of do anyway as a hobby you know i mean i, I would edit magazines whether or not i was being paid for it and I, I used to make magazines when i was eight or ten years old just for fun um and one of those things that you just like doing naturally you know it'd be different for everyone else of course you have to earn money so a lot of people might think well fine i'm going to separate the two you know um i've got a friend who's uh, an accountant he's not looking for creative fulfillment in his job you know he gets that elsewhere so that's the balance he's got he just goes in does his job he comes home doesn't get stressed out about it doesn't take it home and i can really see that that's that's a uh, solution for some people other people like me or musicians artists you know um they would find it really difficult to uh be an employee um uh you know i would find it too boring i i, I did work at a big organization the guardian newspaper for a few years and uh, i had a great job there it was wonderful i loved it but uh, the i realized that if you were to get on in the uh, corporation at least half your time is spent doing office politics and scheming and so on which i really could not be bothered i guess like doing the actual creative work um so i quit to start my own agency and concentrate on the magazine so i think there are you know you've got to work work it through for yourself uh certainly if you're only doing a job for the money that can get very depressing you know, and people do get extremely depressed if they're in if they're doing the wrong thing with their life. You know, as you would. Um, so the Idler magazine and my books, we're trying to help people to escape from those situations, to recreate a situation um, that you feel that you you created yourself, that you've chosen. So you're in a sense that you you become free. So actually, the whole point of being an idler is to become a free person who's sort of more or less in control of uh, their life and their working life. You feel like you've made the decisions um, and not that you've been sort of forced into them by the consumer society or uh, by pressure from, you know, parents, um, co-workers, colleagues, whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really about freedom and, and grabbing it. But there, there are many, many different paths. Do you, okay, I'm really curious about, uh, do you think that that sort of bohemian lifestyle, okay, there are, of course, people who don't want a bohemian lifestyle, but anybody who dreams about it, do you think it's possible for basically anybody to do it? It is possible for anybody to do it, if you're prepared to give up some of the sort of consumer comforts that are thrown at us. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to suffer times of um, not having much money. You probably need to reduce your outgoings. Um, it would certainly be ridiculous to be making payments on a car or something like that, you know. So you, you've got to accept that uh, you're not necessarily going to be well off. You, know, you might earn money later or at some point, um, uh, but you can't expect to have the comforts of um, the kind of conventional world, i.e., a salary that pops into your bank account every month. Um, you know vacations and expensive clothes and cars and so on you know fancy restaurants i mean one of the things i advise is frugality which sounds a bit boring but you know i mean 
one of the problems actually when you're stuck in a boring job is that you 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 tend to overspend um so because you're a bit depressed you buy yourself uh treats to cheer yourself up you might go to starbucks or the coffee place too much buy sandwiches at lunchtime uh you're spending money on commuting drinks after work with colleagues who you hate waste of money uh, <laughs> um clothes and if, if you're a, if you're a freelancer you, you don't you don't those costs don't apply you know we bring sandwiches into the office we have a coffee machine in here you know um I, I, yeah i go out for lunch sometimes take people out for lunch but you know i cycle to the office just keep the cost low um because if your overheads are low uh then you don't need to earn so much money and that can give you more freedom so yeah it's you know it's, it, i don't want to be glib about it and um because the the downside of this path is that uh yeah you could go through what i call the bohemian wobble which is hang on i'm 45 i have no money um my friends who went who who became lawyers are now partners and earning you know hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and they they got two houses and so on uh, so you can say hmm, maybe i made a mistake here uh but do you want to be them do you want to be that bored uh do you only want to live for money you know do you want to do jobs that you find amoral or wrong you know no uh so i think it's overall it's it's much it's better you know if you can create your own your own living in some way and you can avoid doing stuff that you maybe have morally disagree with but you know uh we need money you know you need, you need a certain level of income so you need to be sensible about it and i mean one option that we sometimes advise is how about a three-day job three-day a week we we have two staff right now who are doing uh, one does a two-day week with us and the other does a three-day week that gives them a basic income and time to pursue their other stuff so for example kathleen who works here is doing a phd in her other three days um and Flo is a playwright and so we're going to be flexible with her she might need to take a couple of weeks off to go and get a play going uh, but she's got at least she's got that basic three days a week income um hopefully in a reasonably enjoyable environment uh, so that's another way of doing it uh, other times in your life you know you might want a full-time job um and you, you might get a great job that you actually enjoy i just think it's quite rare um you know it's just so common for people to say they, they really hate their job uh and i just think this is crazy it's a crazy way to live and there's got to be got to be other ways and that's what we explore yeah and i really uh like i said really appreciated your book because it's like this perfect mix of it's not super woo woo it's very practical but it's also really believes in this idea so i think it's very encouraging we definitely plugged it <laughs> on our last episode um Megan, do you um, have some questions? I well, no, I forever. just was going to say that I, I, um, I found the your Bohemian Wobble um, really interesting because the whole time you were describing it, I was sitting here thinking, but there's, you know, there's the converse of that, which is you're, you know, 37, 45, and you're saying I haven't done the artistic things that I wanted to do all of my life. What have I been doing? I've been wasting my time. And so, you know, I guess you just have to decide which which of those alternatives you're going to be the happiest with, right? Or the least unhappy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. Um, you know, uh, 
lawyers complain about being bored but you know I'm like well I wouldn't mind being that rich <laughs> um, but I, I've made you know I think the, the real point is you know existentially speaking um, you make your bed and you lie in it and um, I think people underestimate the extent to which they're actually architects of their own fortunes I, I, I don't mean to say by the way at all um, I think it's a, a very unpleasant aspect mm. of some of the kind of Silicon Valley bros that they say um, you know uh, you know, you make your own luck. I mean, someone, you know, a, a, a recent immigrant who's fled a, 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 a desperate situation um, in Africa, who's ended up in a European or an American city and is driving an Uber, um, is in a much, much less advantageous situation than Travis or whoever it is who's the kind of CEO of these awful companies. Um, and so for him to turn around to an Uber driver and say, you know, some people can't take responsibility for their own shit is, um, you know, pretty disingenuous, I think. Um, so there's, there's, there's a degree to which that philosophy I've just espoused can actually be taken too far and it's a bit harsh uh, because you forget about being compassionate and you know, there's a lot of luck involved in life um, I think a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley people are, underestimate the extent to which they've just been extremely lucky um, and they think it's because they're some kind of super being which they're not, they're just ordinary people uh, they might be a bit, uh, they might be um, they're probably less, uh, less empathetic can we say, than your normal person, uh, tougher, perhaps more brutal, um, and less caring, um, and, and greedier, <laughs> all those things. Um, but you know, they're, they're not, they're not gods or anything. Um, so, but yeah, I think you, you, but it, I have to say to myself, look, Tom, you know, when, when we had a, in, in the, in the book you mentioned, I talk about our bookshop, which we ran for five years. Um, that was really, really a tough thing to do. Um, a, a fantasy, a lovely idea, Let's run our own bookshop, cafe. We'll have events every evening. We'll run courses. And it'll be a lovely place, you know. Um, I think it's probably quite a common dream. Um, but we were foolish enough, actually, to do it and to remortgage our house and stuff. <laughs> and it was much harder work than we could ever have anticipated. It, it was certainly quite satisfying sometimes. Um, you know, we had some great nights there. We met loads of people. Um, but it was really tough. And I had to say, look, we, you know, you, you can't complain because you – you took out the loan. You chose to open a shop. You took on a three-year lease. Um, no one forced you to do that. And it's the same often when people say, well, I'd like to uh, pursue my dreams and become an artist or whatever. Um, but, you know, I've got my mortgage. Well, no one forced you to buy a house that was much, much too expensive. <laughs> I mean, I've got friends who have a million-pound mortgages, you know, and then they, yeah. they say, well, you know, well, I've got a mortgage. Well, no, what you did, you prioritised living in a big fancy house to show off and going into massive debt. In order to get to pay that debt, you have to serve the corporation. Um, that's the choice that you took, you know, and you're a grown up person and you're, you know, middle aged and you, you, you made that decision. But other people, you know, um, and I made my decision. Uh, I decided to become a writer. And, you know, writers aren't generally well off you know i mean if i wanted to make money i could have gone into the financial industry um but I've, I've decided to become a writer uh i think i was a little unlucky because my parents were both journalists and they used to earn loads of money but uh the money got sucked out of journalism in the you know about 10 years ago but still you know yeah the bohemian is unlikely to be rich it might happen i mean i'm ambitious for my magazine and our, our business we actually work quite hard on the business side now and um, do lots of marketing. We want to get, you know, new customers and new fans. 
Um, my, my great model, I mean, obviously it's, it's unachievable completely by anybody. Lots of people have tried, no one will ever do it again. It's the Beatles. There's a wonderful sort of, you know, um, sort of loose, natural, uh, open, freedom of spirit. Um, they have lots of songs about idling, by the way, you know. Uh, and that's what we all want to be, really, is to sort of do something that's really fun, which contributes to the world, uh, which is not evil. Um, and, yeah, they made money. Great. Well done. That's, you know, I don't think anybody resents Paul McCartney being rich. Um, where, where we, people do resent bankers being rich because there's this kind of sense that they, they kind of uh, tricked people uh, to become rich. Um, so my ideal would be sort of, you know, a, a really a good, honest business that you like, that helps people. Um, yes, you've got to be sensible about the business. You can't give everything away for free. Uh, as I said in the book, you've got to be sensible about your marketing and stuff. Um, so that's my aspiration. But that's, you know, it's, it's quite a tough thing to do, but sorry, going back to the original question. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it is possible for people to do this. And you, you, I think people have a responsibility to themselves to fulfill their, um, you know, I think we have all have a natural need to, to be creative and, and to be philosophical as well. Um, and those needs aren't really very well catered for by most jobs. And so we need to make a bit of an effort to, to find the time to do that stuff for ourselves. Either, as you say in your podcast, you know, this could be something that you do alongside your full-time job or you do it part-time or, you know, after a while you might be able to do it full-time. Right, right. Well, and so this question is kind of, it kind of has two sides, I guess. Um, but you you talk about, or I want to talk a little bit about making, making those changes, um, both in the career, you know, change, you, you wake up one day and you realize that everything is terrible and you, you just can't continue the way you've been continuing. And so yeah. you leave your current job or you, you know, whatever the transition is that you make, um, towards a more bohemian life or a more artistic life or, you know, however, however framing it works best for you. Um, but then also on the other side, you know, you say you're in control of your own destiny and you can, um, you know, you're in this mortgage and it's your choice, which I'm totally with you on that. We've never, I've actually, um, I'm 37. I've never owned, owned anything more than a car. So, yeah. <laughs> um, which is great. It's such a great feeling, uh, not yeah. to have that responsibility, but, um, at the same time, like you also can sometimes get into, uh, business situations where, you know, when you're on your own, I'm actually in the process of extricating myself from a freelance situation and going back to a more, um, regular job, but it's like a nine month in, in the school system. So it would be nine month and have the summer. Yeah. So it's sort of a little bit more flexible. Um, you know, mm. so when do you, you, there's just a lot of, of changing, um, over the course of a life. Mm. Right. And we don't work this, work mm. the job like our parents did. And, they stay in the same company for 50 years and retire and have a pension. Um, and so there is a lot of change. And so could you talk a little bit about the process of making those changes um, and kind of how you go about it, both deciding to give up on, not not give up on something completely, but refocus as you did from your bookshop to now you, mm. the Idler Academy and all of your online things and your magazine, mm. as well as leaving 
conventional employment to go freelance. So, well, it's it's difficult because the world is changing so quickly. You know, because you don't know whether Google or Facebook is going to come and completely destroy your businesses mm. that you've been building up. Um, this is and sort it, of a philosophical it, question, I guess. More like the the <laughs> how to yeah. be, how to be okay with change. How to be okay with change? Well, I, I suppose I, I think you know if, if you realise uh, that a lot of other people are, are in a, have a similar way of thinking, um, that really helps. You know, um, and you find a community of people who think the way you do and have similar attitudes, um, who you can go and complain <laughs> about your life with, and they understand what you're talking about. Uh, because as you say, you know, when Victoria and I were running our shop and we we would start complaining and moaning to people um and they'll be like well you know you're you're you know it looks amazing you're, you've got this lovely shop you do what you want you're, you're not you got you know you're not beholden to anybody you're not bored um and uh and then we'd, we'd feel a bit bad about having been complaining uh, basically i think we're probably complaining about money uh but i think you have to hang on to the fact of things like okay look i'm never bored you know i, I don't remember being bored for years, the people complain about boredom at work or at home, and, and you know, Victoria and I, my partner, we, like, we just don't get bored. So that's that's a positive. <laughs> so that's good. Um, and uh, for me, it's about uh, philosophically speaking. I mean, um, I talk a little bit about the Stoics in the book. You know, the Stoics were the uh, kind of philosophical school that was born in ancient Athens in about three or 400 BC. Um, and they kind of invented the idea of going with the flow. So they were like, oh, you know, things happen. That's maybe it's meant to be. And there's some kind of like plan for me that I can't quite see at the moment. And um, so I'm not going to get too kind of hassled in the short term because maybe this is going to lead to something better, even though it looks bad right now. And that's kind of the Stoic philosophy. And they also believed in some kind of God or some kind of force that's kind of guiding things. Um, so I think people can find that helpful. And, um, you know, I do stuff like uh, just try and keep up a bit of meditation to sort of reground yourself. And also just to, to keep focusing on what you actually want to do and what makes you happy. Um, and also realizing that, yeah, you know, um, uh, the bohemian life um it's not that funny being poor. You know, it's like, it's really annoying um, and it's stressful. And you, you, all you do is think about money. Um, and so in our case, you know, we had to, as you say, we had to kind of re-pivot everything. Um, we did have one investor. I, I went out and um, sort of pounded the streets with my laptop and we gathered gathered some new investors for this idea because, we, you know, we've been going for a long time. We have got some fans and stuff. And, and and made it into a proper business. Like I thought, I'm going to have to like actually work quite hard to um, to get this moving again. Uh, but you know, I was on the point of thinking, how am I, you know, what should I do? Go busking? I mean, I, I got my ukulele. I can I can go and stand <laughs> on Westminster Bridge and make some money that way. <laughs> and I was really on the point of doing that because I was sort of desperate. Um, so yeah but I think you know you sort of have to come back to the fact that well what how do I actually want to live my everyday life really um yeah we can have goals and targets too there's nothing wrong with that but I'm actually enjoying the everyday um so I think I I, I sort of kept telling myself well this is you know I've I have got the power to change things if I want to change them 
I mean, I know it's it's, it's really cliched, kind of boring self help advice, um, <laughs> which is repeated again and again. But it's it's true, you know. Sort of people waste a lot of time worrying about things that they they have no control over, um, and not doing anything about the things that they can control. So, for example, we we get really annoyed with our partner, um, and we find them really irritating, and wish they would uh, undergo a personality change, and they never do. Um, but you can sort of you can control your own reactions to the annoying stuff that they do to you, um, and you know th- that way you you can find some sort of happiness. Um, our list our listeners are in our audience is mostly writers. Um, a lot of them are fiction writers. Could be lots of different skills. Um, and to some degree, you know, journalism or the type of writing that you've done is arguably more marketable um, than maybe novel writing or poetry or whatever, which is not anything against those art forms. I'm also writing a novel. But um, I guess my question is, how do you, like if you think about that particular sort of subset of that audience, what are things that they can do? And do you have any particular advice for how they might think about making that transition? And I'm also thinking about like what skills they might need to learn or how they might uh, think about how they craft their life. Well, it is quite hard nowadays because um, the, the kind of outgoing extroverted people are rewarded. So, you know, everybody's told, you know, to do your social media marketing, whatever. And, um, hey, I'm great. I'm really excited to be writing my new novel. And aren't I amazing and great and fantastic? And I'm amazing. Um, some people are introverted and shy. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're, they're less talented. So I, I kind of feel for the um, introverted, shy, but brilliant authors out there who are not very good at self-promotion. Um Things have changed, you know, uh, it, it's much harder to get stuff published. Um, and the people who shout and have, uh, you know, more Twitter followers or whatever, um, wrongly in my in my view, but, you know, uh, are sort of listened to a bit more by publishers. So I think, um, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't actually recommend, um, uh, in, in terms of sort of selling yourself, I, I, I think social media is overrated. What I do think is a good idea um, for anybody who's doing anything um, freelance or creative is to build up a mailing list. Um, I'm sure you've heard this advice many times before. But so, you know, you write to people once a month and you start to build up and you tell them what you're what you're doing, like a little diary. We do that and people really enjoy that and they respond to it, you know. Um, and in terms of, you know, because... <sighs> Uh, creative writing is just like anything else it's a horribly competitive world you know um there's anyone jonathan france and i mean you know you're sort of kind of unlikely uh statistically speaking um to be a rich and famous author you're even quite unlikely to make a living out of it even if you are famous i mean there are lots of writers in the uk over the last 10 20 years i mean who are really well known but there's no way they could make a living out of it because you only get paid 50 pence per book sale or, or, you know, so how many books do you have to sell each year to make a reasonable income? It's just insane. Um, what I've always done is like, just get on with it on my own. So I would recommend to writers to um, produce their own small magazine, a printed thing, um, get together with some others, just put your stuff out there in print. You know, even if you just print 500 copies of a fanzine or something, um, you know, a, a friend of mine runs a, a writer's club. It, it's really for homeless people in Boston. Um, and he puts out a magazine called The Pilgrim, which is not even online. 
and they print three or four hundred copies they get subscribers um it's a actually a great magazine you know he, he gets fantastic writing out of these people um because a lot of the uh homeless people in boston they're, they're amazing people they're amazing characters you know they've got amazing stories to tell uh and he just puts it together in a very very simple like sort of photocopied stapled together 32 page magazine you know it doesn't really cost anything um but he's made something he's made a thing i i, I subscribe to it. i get it sent to me here it's called the pill it's just a, a, a lovely magazine so even if you only had like 50 or 100 or 200 people buying it and you know what can they subscribe could you put them on a sort of you know this is my literary magazine i've started a literary magazine in my area it's got people i know that's how we started the idler you know it's just, it was friends of mine i'm sure you both have like an amazing network of talented writers um and i think this is better than blogs because uh kind of anyone can do a blog um it doesn't really mean anything um it's sort of lazy uh but actually to go out there and you know find a designer and a typesetter um get the articles together and the stories um and produce a beautiful little printed magazine you know people are going to see that it gets passed around it gets left around in houses it's in the bathroom you know you can take it to the local shop and people actually see it and that's also where getting you know getting your name out there um i think you know when people send us stuff for consideration um i'm looking at stuff like uh well have they been published elsewhere anywhere you know um local newspapers um small magazines small publications you, you know, there's, there's a lot of small magazines out there, um, which are great. You know, there's, there's actually a small magazine kind of revival going on. And you can write to all these people and some of them might be interested in publishing your work. Uh, you're unlikely to get paid, but you might get $50 or something. Um, so I think that's another, that whole offline world um, needs to be, be explored uh, more. And I think that could, that could really make you stand out. And it's, it's very satisfying to um you know see your work in print if you just uh, and then you get someone else to edit it correct it proofread it when you just bung up um blogs and stuff uh they're often of quite low quality because they haven't been edited properly um and um and people go off them and then blogs you know it's just, this blog was last updated in may 2017 um and people sort of don't to have the discipline to keep them going but a newsletter, a, a printed magazine, you know, they, they, they'll make you stand out more. So that's, that's one tiny piece of advice. I mean, uh, speaking practically, um, you don't really get anywhere until you have a literary agent. Um, so you've got to find someone who uh, is prepared to um, talk to publishers on your behalf. And then the other advice that we always say is that you've got to actually write something that people might actually want to pay for. Um, so no one knows what that is because when a book is published, nobody knows whether it's <laughs> going to buy it or not. I mean, it's completely random and, you know, very surprising books go to number one and, and, you know, terrible books and then really, really good books um, don't get noticed. It's just really sad. It's completely tragic. I mean, I, I weep in bookshops, um, looking at all the kind of broken dreams of all the they're the people who've, who've actually got their book published. Um, and then once you get it published, there's more disappointments ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, because no one buys it, you get bad reviews or you don't get reviewed or I mean, it's, it, it never, never ends. I mean, Zadie Smith is one of the sort of top writers probably of her generation. 
Um, and when you read interviews with her, she's, she gets so, so full of disappointments all the time. <laughs> you know, and so whatever level you're at, if you're at the top level like that or at the bottom level or the medium level, um, it's full of disappointments. Um, so you, you have to be sort of quite mentally strong, I suppose. But I think the, I know from personal experience, the, um, you know, the experience of having a book printed and um, it's, it's lovely. It's so satisfying. Uh, but if no one's going to do it for you, then my advice is do it yourself. I really like going back to kind of how you started, what I think is really good because I think for writers, it's really hard because your natural inclination is you're inside. You're probably writing on your computer. Even if you're not, you're writing longhand and then you're writing in your computer. Uh, and so you're always kind of behind the screen. And yet the whole purpose of most people doing art is also partly to connect to a community or kind of a tradition or something. Maybe I'm optimistic. But that I mean, I think we all, you know, we like books. That's why we write. Um, for most people. And so I like this idea of being in this sort of somehow a real life community. I mean, it can still be virtual, but it's not like a lot of times you think because that's what other people have done, like you should start a blog and then you'll have all these followers. I don't think anyone is even reading blogs anymore. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just thinking about like how you can actually participate and get to know people. I think it sounds more intimidating to writers probably or anyway, people who are maybe naturally introverted, but I think it builds up really quickly. And that's something that we've seen in our podcast is just like you start to get certain people who really interact with you um, and who really want to have a conversation. I think that's really satisfying. And, you know, finding things where you also want to be part of the conversation, I think is really great. It's not a question. Uh, I, I was inspired by the idea partly by my, my trip to the States in the late 80s. And there were these fantastic zines like um, uh, Temp Slave and Dishwasher. Uh, and it was a, a really um, beautiful, wonderful, sort of thriving, punky sort of zine scene. Um, and there, there, was a, 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 there was one about panic attacks called Popular Panic. And you know, there, any, any tiny subject, someone, this is pre-internet, and any tiny subject, someone had done a zine about it. Um, and they had themes and they were, they were, you know, they had cartoons and they were quite sort of free in their expression. Um, and I just think it's a lovely form um, of artistic creation, which could probably come back. It was sort of taken over by the internet in a way because... Um, the point about zines is like, well, don't wait around, you know, for the the man to kind of approve you. Just get on and do it yourself. Start a band, start a magazine, you know, it, even if it's quite rubbish um, and it's stapled and it's photocopied and whatever. Um, you've done something. And um, but the, these, you know, they had a big influence way beyond their small numbers. Um, people were reading and passing them around. And um, the other thing is that uh, those people you know, if you're, if you're editor of X zine, um, that, that people are like, Oh, you get a lot of respect, um, uh, more, far more than doing a blog or, or, you know, um, Facebook, whatever. Um, because you've actually, you know, got off your butt and like gone down to the photocopy shop and, or the printer and find out how to do it and got on your bicycle and cycled around the record stores and left, five copies on sale or return this sort of thing you know which is what i used to do with the idler and uh, but people see it it's amazing um and it gets passed around and i, I guess I think, I think it's a it's a, a really really you know I, I, I'd, I'd love to see that all that stuff coming back again i think it might do um 
we've been a bit distracted by this stuff. But the problem with the internet is it's been monopolized by these sort of two or three big companies. And so they've kind of monopolized our creative expression. And they're right. You know, people want to express themselves on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm expressing myself, you know, um, don't you want, uh, I'm expressing myself on YouTube, but you know, okay. You're expressing yourself, but only so that they can sell ads against it, you know, and you're basically giving them all your creative work for nothing. Uh, for free and you just hand it over to them and they go wow that's you're really stupid you just gave me all your, your life's work for nothing I'm going to put it on my website and sell advertising against it and, and you know retire to Palo Alto in a kind of 10 million dollar mansion um, and uh, yeah um, so I think that you know it's sort of, well yeah I'll just come back to that same point I suppose um, you know print something yourself uh, and it, yeah, you can even printing technology has, has got really good. And I mean, you can um, uh, you could even make your own book and you know print like a hundred copies of a book, and then you've got a book book out there. Okay, you've only done a hundred copies. You can, no one knows that. Um, and you can say my book. <laughs> Rather than just waiting for for a publisher to come along, you know, I'm saying this. This is a way to. Uh, I'm just kind of throwing a lot of stuff out there because. You know, still the way to um, the, the next stage would be to sort of be published with a proper publisher. Um, but there are lots of small publishers. There's independent publishers. There's, um, as I said, independent magazines who are looking for stuff. Uh, start your own zine and start small and punky and sort of have fun with it. Uh, there's a magazine that some people were producing from a like a independent bookshop in Spain. You know, um, they're not. It was really good. Oh, they they did a competition. Yeah, that's that's the way way to get. So they said to hit, we're putting out a writing competition. Um, the prize is you know a hundred pounds or I don't know something affordable, uh, and all, the best six stor- short stories will get published in a magazine, which we'll print and we'll we'll we're going to print it and sell it in in our shop and get it around the place. They got some really really good entries. One or two of them from you know pretty well established writers. Um, so they were thrilled. They had uh, there's a writer called Joanna Walsh who's you know quite successful. She sent them the story, and they were like, "Wow, this is great!" So that, you know, just because they 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 had a go, um, and, um, and things happened. I mean, as I'm sure you found with your podcast, you know, sort of people people sort of gather. So if you, if you set up a stall in your mar- in the market, people do come to it, um, and uh, so that, that's always my advice: is just sort of get on with it yeah you know follow the professional route at the same time possibly look for agents and try to get published in big big things but also also look at all the small stuff you could do yeah i think my final comment on that particular line of questioning um then i'll let megan (laughs) speak uh but is that what i think maybe what is most damaging about you know having so much concentration in our online activity in terms of what we consume is that you never really hear about small successes. And so it's like, if you're not going to be whatever Google or Facebook, then there's basically no point starting something. Whereas, you know, like I, I was listening to some other podcasts about this lady that set up basically a market stall, as you're saying, you know, and then started with a little shop and she's still only going to have a little shop. Like that's her success, but that's still a success compared to where she was before when it was just a dream. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think that there's a new book that's come out, which you, you, you might've come across. I think it's called company of one. Yeah, we just talked to Paul uh, Jarvis a couple of weeks ago. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice uh, statement, you know, um, 
because you're right because the these googles and things get all the all the headlines um you sort of think if, if you haven't sold your company for a billion dollars when you're like 29 or some kind of failure <laughs> and uh, you know and, and you also you look more closely at these companies i mean it is horrific what is going on in them um i just read the book about theranos mm, the um, blood testing company which, yeah the blood testing company. Yeah, it's on my summer, my winter reading list. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I mean, what a fantastic journalist. I mean, it's proper old school investigative journalism, you know, and he basically sort of brought the company down. And they were, you know, I mean, it's absolutely crazy uh, what was going on there. The amount of money they raised as well from these investors. Um, and it was all nonsense. You know, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so do you want to go? Do you want to be in that world anyway? Not really. Do you want to go for an IPO? I mean, do you want? Do you realize what kind of strain you'd be under? I mean, your life is a nightmare in those situations. Um, so I'm not. So I think he's really good in company of one because he's like, you know, he's not saying don't earn any money. Um, a lot of his businesses, business people are very successful and they earn like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But they just construct a system that is um, they're not employing too many people uh they're sensible about it they've reached a point of growth they don't want to grow anymore um, they don't want to just have kind of limitless growth because also that's impossible i mean some of these really big tech companies are now shrinking because they've reached the limit of their growth so they're probably really depressed <laughs> like you know it's like um oh no apple's share price has gone down it's like you're still the biggest company in the world it's like but he it's like uh he had a book on amazon um your if it's on you know, if you have a book out, you start obsessing about what number it's on on Amazon, which is stupid. I wish I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and if it's going up, you're really happy. Whatever it's on, if it's going down, you're sad. So um, it could be on uh, 50, which would be amazing. Um, but if it's just gone down from 10, you're depressed. Sorry about that bashing around. That's my so-called business partner in the background. That's fine. Um, there's, there's, there's two of us and one single dog, which you saw earlier. So we're, we've, we've heroically resisted. The, the idea actually started before Google and Facebook, quite a long time before them. Um, but we, we've resisted the calls to growth. And we've grown from, in that time, a team of two to a team of three. <laughs> Well, you know, and you figure out what's enough for you, right? And that's that's kind of goes to your bohemian philosophy and frugality is, you know, what is enough and what is it that you actually want and are looking for? And then you stop with that. You stop with that. No, I think, I think, I think, I don't know, it's difficult to work it out, but I think quite a lot of the, um, uh, these, not just Silicon Valley, but just taking that as an example, but it's quite a lot of these sort of very big business people and like the kind of people who work for Trump and their hedge fund guys and everything, you know, they're, they're not happy. And also they're crazy. <laughs> uh, they're weird. They're not normal people. You don't want to be like them. Um, and they don't have uh, emotions and stuff like that. Uh, but I think the aspiration to sort of earn a really good living, you know, like I said, you don't want to be suffering um, and work out what that is, but, don't, but, but be sort of reasonably frugal um, and to create a life that is uh, not depressing um where you have lots of fun and you do fun work and you uh, work with nice people and so on that, that that shouldn't be impossible that that should be that should be that should be within our grasp you know and it is possible it's not necessarily easy but it's definitely possible right and you know why why can't that be considered successful exactly so, so that that's that these these examples of people who've done that we try and do that in our magazine they should be considered successes you know um and so 
we do try to find people who've you know who've, who've had a creative uh, attitude to their life i suppose um and are happy with it and um that is a success what's not a success is being divorced three times your children hate you um you're constantly in court and you're stressed out and you can't sleep and you're ill um and uh you know that, that is the case with a lot of these people and then you die and then, then you have a heart attack the, the, the guy who started um microsoft died at 64 yeah yeah mm. poor, poor alan you know okay i know that's sad but i mean what does that tell you i don't know um there's a high price to pay um for that sort of mega success and also they're very very rare 99 percent of us don't do that and and we shouldn't want to either right well and so i kind of wanted to talk about like olivia said earlier you know this whole season we've been talking about i guess the intersection of art and money and um there is a lot of conversation that you know people should be compensated for their artistic efforts you know if it's you know I mean, I'm not just saying that like everybody who draws a crayon drawing gets $50 or whatever, but, um, you know, there's, there's real work that goes into creating art. Um, it's fun, it's joyful, but it's also hard. And if you're, you know, you say authors in the UK and we've, we've gone over some earnings surveys as well that, you know, making 50 P on a book and the book sells for 20 pounds and the publisher gets all the rest of it. And, um, I know it's not quite that simple, but at the same time, you know, who's the one who actually created the book? It's it's the the writer and the editor who worked with them. Um, so fair compensation is one thing, but there's also just the joy of, you know, doing doing the thing that you love, which is creating that art. And I guess from a maybe maybe the more the business, not necessarily the business side, but from kind of that perspective of of figuring out how to do what you love, but also make a living at it. I guess wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that tension between art for art's sake, as well as fair compensation. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult one to get right. Um, uh, if you go full-time artist, obviously you need to get paid because that's your only income. And But what's happened over the last 10 years or so uh, is it's become increasingly diff- more difficult to, as you, as you just said, it's become increasingly more difficult to and a living from you know things like photography, journalism, being a musician, and so on. Um, Jaron Lanier has written about this uh, in some two or three really terrific books, which are worth looking at. Um, because of YouTube, <laughs> um, you know, because of these big platforms. So, um, uh, well, and that's how we measure success in the West, right? That's how we quantify it is by how much money it makes. Yeah, we. Well, what I wanted to say was, um, you know, uh, on the point of um, uh, artists making a living, there, there are movements around this. Um, and I've got a friend here who, in the, in London, he runs something called Basker, which is the Academy of Songwriters and Artists and so on. And, and they're actually campaigning with the EU against um, YouTube to uh, reform copyright and, and make sure that artists actually get paid. Um, but what's happened is that. But at the same time, as you say, uh, you, you know, the the basic problem, I think, is that a lot of artists and creative people think that money is a bit sort of dirty um, and you shouldn't have to sort of, you know, here's an example. Um, a friend of mine, uh, he, he runs our choir and he's, he's, a, he's a, a brilliant conductor. He, he's a classical music person. Um, he's a singer, you know, multi-instrumentalist. He runs early music festivals. 
he is the choir master at the church in Trafalgar Square. Um, so he's sort of very successful and he's a freelance person. He organizes stuff and he organizes a festival. And um, uh, the ticket prices are something like 15 pounds, which is 15 or 20 dollars. And, um, you know, it's it's not easy to sell tickets. It's classical music. You know, it's not like the most popular thing. Um, but he, he gets people saying, oh, that's rather a lot. Um, 15 pounds. Are, are you doing this? for the love or the money <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh that's rather elitist to charge so much for classical music it's like how much does it cost to go and see oasis it costs about 120 pounds no one says they're elitist you know um so it is really difficult and you feel like well you know i, I, I want to be pure and I, I don't want to deal with money and you know um but but we do have to make a living but there are these people out there who will sort of accuse you of profiteering if you try and charge a, a reasonable um price but i think they just have to sort of be ignored um, but yeah, I think what Silicon Valley's done is sort of kind of preyed on that worry that creative people have about you know when the internet starts like, hey, just share your stuff and like copyright's really bad. Let, let's share, you know, um, mm -hmm. just give it away because you know it's really evil to sell your creativity. Just share it and like you know, well, okay, so we all shared it. Um, but as I said, the, the people who are encouraging us to share our creativity so, and give it away for free themselves are not sharing anything they're making absolute fortunes you know um so it's a really really difficult one to get right and um i i, I, I struggle with it uh, as i say in my book i think um if you do want to make a living as an art artist um you have to firstly charge very high prices uh, much higher than you might think because um you can't compete with sort of you know low prices uh yeah. and or you, you you just accept the fact that this is going to be something you do just for its own sake in your spare time um which is also something that we encourage at the idol i mean you know i'm never going to make any money out of my singing and ukulele playing um <laughs> because it's absolutely awful uh, but i really enjoy it um and i go to a choir and i go to my ukulele groups and so on and i, I sometimes play it live after we've locked the doors ha 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 um and um sorry i've just been given a note to do some shopping <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's obviously a perfectly reasonable thing to do as well. It's 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 really hard. But we used to say to people, you know, in we did a questionnaire, money or art, you know, which way do you go? Someone said mart. <laughs> well, and so that's something that, as someone who's always just kind of been very responsible and driven, and you know, supposed to be an achiever and that sort of thing. Um, this summer, I read how to be idle and it was just it was like the perfect time to one it was summer which is the perfect time to read things but um like that and lays in the hammock but um i was in the middle of making some big decisions about my career and other sorts of things and my my book that i was working on and um i read that book and it was just like how how much of our lives we go through thinking that everything we do has to be productive and it has to be worthwhile and it has to do something at the end of the day that does not include making you mm. happy. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when you, I think this is something that some people who try to do art for money run into is it's mm. no longer fun when they have to make money off of it. Um, yeah. You know, and you find something else or, that is fun or, or whatever, but, but I guess deprogramming that cap, you know, late capitalist society 
mantra of everything must be productive and there's no such thing as like perfect productivity you can always do more and be worthwhile yeah and you know we i think there are two things i'd say one is we used to have these things called hobbies <laughs> right um <laughs> and you know which was just stuff done for its own sake now useless it's a side hustle yeah so i mean now you have to have like you have to have a full-time job a uh, career and then you've got to have a, a full-time job when you're at home you know, and yeah. there was a great cartoon in the New Yorker, um, and this guy lying in bed on his laptop, and he says, "At weekends, um, uh, I like to relax by working from home." Yeah. You know, and it's like, so you, 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 <laughs> you know, you got this kind of stressful job uh, during the day, and then in the evenings you come and do, as you say, your, your side hustle. I heard about this thing called hustle porn. Have you, have you heard of this, this no. phenomenon? But and people like post pictures of themselves working really hard, like. Here I am working at midnight, oh, surrounded yeah, by yeah. pizza cars, mm. and they put them on Instagram. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm killing myself with hard work, and they boast about how hard work, how how hard work, how hard they're working. That just makes them stupid <laughs> to me. I mean, that's just like totally moronic. It's not clever at all. It's just really dumb. Um, you know, we hear that in Nordic countries, if you're if you're still sitting at your desk at six fifteen, they're like, hey, he must be really bad at his job <laughs> because like, you know, he's still he, he he's not efficient. He's not like you know, we leave at six o'clock because we sort of, you know, we can um, fit the work in and you don't just kind of like, it means you've done something wrong. I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at things. But yeah, it's kind of, it is, it's definitely a, a kind of a reprogramming that has to go on. Um, the other thing I think is um, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about actually used to be supplied by religion. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, so on a Sunday, you know, you weren't supposed to work, um, uh, there's a sabbatical tradition in um, Jewish culture as well, which would be like a sort of every seventh year off um, yeah. or, or every Saturday off, you know, um, the Jewish Sabbath. And mo- most religions have got a lot of <laughs> anti-work stuff built into them just to stop people from working too hard. And, you know, shops used to be closed on the Sundays until fairly recently in the UK, and that was a hangover from the Sabbath. Um, yeah. Not only that, but, uh, you know, we just come back from Italy and, the churches that were built in the medieval period are just absolutely stunningly beautiful um, and really uplifting. And anybody could wander into these places, you know, um, and, you know, you got taken out of yourself, go into a different world, like a spiritual world, um, a world of sort of awe and wonder and beauty. Uh, singing, you know, they, they had these incredible choirs. Um, and still today, you know, people obviously, you know, do go to church and, and they, they get something else, um, a different dimension um, to life. And um, I think really can used to provide that for a lot of people and, and still does provide it for a lot of people, of course. Uh, but a lot of people have lost that. So we, we, when you're very secular and you don't go to church or anything, then life does t- sort of tend towards becoming all about, you know, you, is that useful to me in my life, my career? Will it make me money? And, um, so we all need to sort of make this effort to make this other time um, for, uh, you know, a sort of contemplative, for contemplation, I suppose. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, and I think as well, it's just useful for your life to be kind of bad at things and just to try them anyway and to give up on this idea that you have to succeed at everything, you know. It's good, for, it's good to be bad at things. It's polite to other people. <laughs> you know, um, if you're... you're if you're perfect, that's kind of actually quite rude um, to other people. Uh, we got a, a an event with a Buddhist monk 
um, in January called Heenan Thunan. And his books uh-huh. have really sold a lot of copies. And they're, they're really lovely. And he, he just says, um, he just says things like, well, I just had realised one day that lots of people hate me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's a really kind of liberating thought, actually. Yeah, you know. And then his new book is um, sort of a, a sort of an essay against perfectionism. Um, you can't be perfect. You can't be the perfect parent. Um, in fact, being the perfect parent is actually quite often damaging to the psychological health of the child mm. Mm. Um, because you're too too good, you know, too much to live up to. Um, and you can't be perfect uh, at anything, really. You know, I mean, we all sort of like blunder through when we're human beings. Um, so people should sort of firstly let themselves off the hook about that uh, and then realise that, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to be imperfect because, you, you know, you make other people feel better. Yeah, that's how I think of it too. <laughs> no, uh, I think I think of it as character building for myself as well. So it's good. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, thank you so much. This was it's great. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. No, thank you. Thanks a lot. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rinkaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I had a question. I just forgot it. I'm sorry. Um... (laughs)